Welcome to part two of a series that we're calling Out of Nazareth. In a few weeks, we gather to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate the most significant event in all of human history. There's never been a more important event than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, so that humanity could experience salvation, redemption, and eternity with the God who created them. Preaching the gospel right out of the gate, Jeff. Come on. I'm fired up, man. It's been a good day. I got caffeine and Holy Spirit. I'm ready to roll. Um, So in order to do that, what I thought we should do before we celebrate his death and his resurrection, let's lean into his life. Because this is what I've discovered. I get why there's people in the room and people watching online that have an issue with the church. I understand that. I grew up in it. I probably know it better than anybody. Because our experience in the church can be varied and it can be difficult, but I don't know how you can honestly look at the life of Jesus and not be drawn to him. Not not the culture Jesus, the scripture Jesus. I don't know how you can open up your Bible and read these four accounts that we have of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know how you can read the story of his life and not be drawn to who he is because it's the greatest story ever told. And I love how God in his infinite wisdom gave us these four gospels written by four different people with the intention of drawing four different audiences into relationship with Jesus. That every one of the gospel writers had kind of a target audience that he was writing to in hopes that they would see Jesus the way the one who's putting pen to paper saw him recognizing him for who he is. And what I want to simply do is just invite us to to look at Jesus over these next few weeks, just to look at his life, to to really get into his story. Because I think if you'll join me in looking at the life of Jesus, he will draw you to himself. You will see there's something beautiful and attractive about who he is, or at least that's my hope. And to do that, we're looking at the gospel of Luke. We're just going to look at one man's account. And, and the more I read the way Luke tells his story, the more I'm drawn to him because of the way that Luke writes. Because Luke is, is very unusual in his story with Jesus. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he was a contemporary of Jesus. But he wasn't like so many of the people that got to be exposed to Jesus during his ministry. Luke was kind of on the outside, In scripture, you'll notice these two groups of people often mentioned in the New Testament, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were those people that that grew up with access to the Old Testament, access to the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, access to the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. They were the ones that should have seen Jesus immediately, but somehow missed him completely. But Luke was Greek. He was a man of science. He was a physician and he didn't grow up around that. And he didn't get to see all this stuff firsthand with Jesus. Somewhere along the way, he got exposed to the gospel through the ministry of Paul. And he became so convinced that Jesus was worth chasing. Jesus was worth believing in. Jesus was worth knowing that he decided that he was going to investigate all these things so that he could put on paper an accurate account of Jesus' story in the hopes that those who would read it later would be drawn to him. 
And so he writes the Gospel of Luke and he writes the book of Acts. It's this two-volume work where he, he investigates and he goes around and he interviews people who walked with Jesus, who were sitting with Jesus, who had met Jesus. He probably pulled people that were sitting among the crowd the day that Jesus fed the 5,000 and heard their account of the story and how things unfolded. Like all the events that we're about to read about as we go on this journey together through the life of Jesus come from people that Luke interviewed who were there and saw it with their own eyes. And these two books, Luke and Acts, are written to this man named Theophilus. It's a cool name. We got a lot of pregnant people around here. Theophilus, just consider it. It means lover of God. I just point out, Matthew means gift from God. Just saying. He writes to Theophilus, but he's also writing to us. And he opens his gospel and he tells the story of Jesus coming to earth. He tells the story of this virgin named Mary who was betrothed to Joseph and Y'all know the story. And she tells the story of her relative. He tells the story of her relative, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zechariah, who would give birth to John the Baptist, who would fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament of one that would go before Jesus to prepare the way and make known and call people to repentance. And Luke's gospel tells us these stories of, of just gives us a small little snapshot into a couple of moments in his childhood and his boyhood. And then for 30 years, there's... Nothing really known about Jesus as he was tucked away in this little bitty obscure town called Nazareth. And for 30 years, that's where Jesus is, just growing up. The Bible says he was growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Probably learning the family trade, Joseph, his father, was a carpenter. Hanging out with his brothers and sisters as Mary and Joseph would have biological children after Jesus was born. And then there comes a moment when John the Baptist has stepped out and he's calling people to repentance and he's baptizing people. And Jesus comes on the scene and when he sees Jesus, he knows that here comes one who's, who's gonna baptize you not with water, but with fire and whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. And Jesus, in order to model this beautiful act of baptism for us, gets baptized by John and comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit de descends like a dove and the voice of God comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus goes back, we looked at it last week, goes back to his hometown, goes back to Nazareth. And he sits in the synagogue and he asks for a scroll and he opens up that scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61 which was a messianic prophecy pointing to the Messiah who was to come. And Jesus in the synagogue rolls it down, reads it, hands it back to the attendant and says, that's about me. Right here in front of you, that prophecy written hundreds and hundreds of years ago is being fulfilled, giving his hometown people the first opportunity to see him for who he is. And they look around at each other and be like, Ain't that Joseph's boy? And they're confused. And they don't know, they're, they're conflicted. And they can't decide whether or not they want to believe in him or not. And Jesus says, well, maybe if I did some magic tricks or did some miracles, maybe you would believe. But here's the problem. Y'all always been stubborn. And he points back to some moments in the history of the nation of Israel to remind them 
that the people that should see what God is doing when it's happening right in front of them are far too often the ones that aren't paying attention. Y'all with me? Come on. He says this in Luke chapter four, verse 25. It says, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. They get mad. And what he's saying, you know, the two people that Jesus point to is a time when Elijah and Elisha were not able to go and heal one of their own, but they had to go to someone outside because they were more willing to receive than the selfish, stu- stubborn people that should have been able to see him for who he is. In other words, he's saying, y'all are suffering from a generational stubbornness. Y'all know anybody that's suffering from a generational stubbornness? Don't elbow nobody in church right now, Okay generational stubbornness. He said, y'all are just as stubborn as your ancestors were, that right in front of you, look at me, right in front of you, God's doing something, and you're too stubborn to notice it. And they get mad. Keep reading, verse 28. says, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd, and he went on his way. They are so angry about what Jesus, they're so offended by what Jesus said. Y'all, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to toss him over the cliff. And I just imagine how this scene just plays out. They're just this angry mob just trying to drag him out. And they get to this top of this cliff and they're intending to throw him out. And the Bible says Jesus just passed right through them. Like, y'all can't touch me. Just, it says Jesus went on his way. And in that moment, he moves out of Nazareth. Because Jesus, look at me, Jesus will not stay where he is not wanted. You're going to see this pattern in the New Testament. Jesus will not stay where he's not wanted. He's looking for people that will see him for who he is. And it says he moves out of Nazareth and begins to do all these amazing things. And at every turn, there are two different kind of groups of people paying attention. Some willing to receive and some looking for a reason to reject. There's this, there's this weird thing that's happening. Is, is there, there are two groups of people that are paying attention to what Jesus does. There's these two different audiences. The, there's this self-righteous, stubborn religious group, and then there's this other broken group of people so desperate for something to be done in their lives that they're willing to give Jesus a chance. My question is, which one will we be? Which one are you? Because he moves out of Nazareth and he starts doing all these amazing things among everybody who will pay attention. And some listen and some see it and some don't. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. It says, then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum to a town in Galilee and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. 
What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And listen to what the demon says. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. In his hometown, we know who you are. You're just Joseph's boy. A demonic spirit in the synagogue. Oh, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One. How is it that the demon can recognize him, but the very people that watched him grow up can't see it? How is it that we can grow up in church, spend our entire lives in Sunday school, that we even got the badges that go down our lapel because we have perfect attendance, carry our Bible here every Sunday, and still miss him? Because sometimes we've lived such an easy life, we forget how much we really need what he has to offer. The demon says, oh, I know who you are. People in his hometown, oh, I know who you are. You're just Joseph's boy. But the demon says, you're the son of God. You're the holy one of God. There will always be this tension between these groups of people as we look and walk through the life of Jesus and he moves out of that place and, and he, he begins to just heal people and, and heal spiritual and physical needs. And if you keep walking through the way that Luke tells the story, we see kind of the first moment we're introduced to his interaction with a guy named Peter. Peter is a guy we'll become very familiar with as we walk through the story of Jesus as it's told by Luke in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Peter becomes this legendary figure in Jesus' story. But when we're first introduced to him, it's because his mother-in-law is sick. His mother-in-law is in bed with a fever and about to die. And Jesus walks in and heals her. And we're just going to assume that Peter was cool with that, even though it was his mother-in-law. I'm not laughing. I love my mother-in-law. But this is where we, this is where he's first introduced to Peter. And it's so cool. Read the story because it said like she, she can't even get out of the bed. And then Jesus heals her and she just gets something like, can y'all, like, y'all want some iced tea? Can I get y'all anything? It's like she just moves right back into the servant's heart that she had before because Jesus has healed her and done amazing things in her life. And when, when this happens, Jesus begins to rise in popularity. People start hearing about, man, he just touches people. He just looks at people. He just says these things, and people who are suffering are made whole. People who are hurting and broken are made whole. And people start to pay attention, and they want him to stay. Luke 4, 42. It says, when it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving. Notice the difference between what happens in his hometown and now. That one group's trying to push him away and another one's trying to plead with him to stay. And that's what you're going to see as we walk through the gospel. There will be a religious self-righteous, stubborn group of people that are constantly looking for a reason to push him away. They're trying to find fault with everything he says and everything he does. And they're picking at his words and trying to manipulate the law in order to catch him and trap him and find a way to be offended. But then there's a group that doesn't push him away. They plead with him to stay because they know they're broken 
and they're hurting and they're lost and they're empty and they don't have purpose. And both groups find what they're looking for because their culture isn't much like ours. You will find what you're looking for. If you're looking for a reason to reject Christianity and to push him away, you'll find it. You'll find it. If you're looking for a reason to give up on church, you'll find it here. If you're looking for a reason to somehow reject or not consider who Jesus is, you'll find it. But if you're looking for hope and peace and purpose and salvation, you'll find it. Because only he can offer it. There's some that want to push him away and some that plead for him to stay. And if you keep reading the story as Luke tells it, there comes this moment when when Jesus wants to teach. And Jesus understood acoustics. So he asked Peter, he says, hey man, can I borrow your boat? I don't want to fish. I don't want to fish with it. I want to preach from it. So he gets in the boat and he pushes out from shore because he knew how his voice would echo over the water up the hill so that people could hear what he was about to say. And he gets out on his boat and he begins to teach. And then after he finishes preaching his sermon, he says, hey, Peter, let's, let's go out for a catch. And Peter's like, Jesus, me and James and John, and I, we, we've been fishing all night. The fish have moved on. We, we're not going to be able to catch anything. And Jesus says, you haven't been out here with me. <laughs> you ain't been on the water with me. So they push out in the water, and y'all, the Bible says they catch so much fish that as they're pulling it up out of the water, the nets are stretching and about to break. That's the greatest catch that Peter has ever had in his entire career. And they are just amazed by it. But on the heels of the greatest catch of his career, Jesus says, Peter, why don't you leave all this behind and follow me? I'm at... I'm asking you to just to lay, to lay all this down. I know you just had the greatest catch of your career, but understand, your worst day with me will be better than your best day on the water. Your, your best day on the water will not compare even with the worst day with me. That you can catch fish and it might fill your pockets, but I'll teach you to fish for people so that you can fill your soul. Preaching today, Tony. And what does Peter does? He says, let's go. Let's go. He lays it all down, walks away from it all, because he knows that Jesus has something, that there's something different about him, that Jesus has something that Peter has never had, and he wants it. And he lays aside his nets and lays aside his career and has to sacrifice so much. We don't even get into the conversation that Peter must have had because this was generational businesses. For Peter to go to his dad and say, Dad, I'm not fishing anymore. What do you mean you're not fishing anymore? This is what we do. We're fishermen. Your father, I'm a fisherman. Your grandfather was a fisherman. Your great-grandfather was a fisherman. What are you going to do? I'm following this rabbi from Nazareth that I'm pretty sure is the Messiah. Okay. And he follows Jesus, and he's with them. He's with him. He's with Jesus as all these miracles that Luke is about to record begin to unfold. So as he moves out, starts moving through the towns, and 
there's a story that happens in chapter 5 that, man, there's so much to it. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. It says, while he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus and he fell face down and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Y'all, this is a crazy story. This is where in my mind, I start watching it play out. Understand that the Bible says that this man had leprosy all over him. Leprosy would usually start out like in, in a small little place. And then as, as you progressed in this really deadly, horrifying disease that would pretty much rot away at your flesh and it would get to the flesh was so rotten it would even smell and it would spread from that spot all over your body. And that would, that would usually take some measure of time. And so when it says that the leprosy was all over his body, that means there was some point where maybe he woke up one day and maybe it was on his forearm, he noticed a spot and that he could cover up and nobody would see because they treated lepers different in this culture. If you had leprosy, if they didn't banish you to some commune far off in some other place, they forced you to walk through the town and if you had leprosy, you would have to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean to signify that you had a sickness that should keep others away from you. So that means he would say unclean, and if people were walking down the street, they would cross to the other side and keep their distance. Because you, you thought you didn't even want to get close to someone with leprosy. And if it's all over his body, that means maybe it's been years since it started. And I wonder, was he married? And how long had it been since he had felt his wife kiss him on the cheek? Did he have kids? How many years had it been since he held the hand of his baby girl and helped her down the street? And as physically hurtful as it all been, emotionally painful, it would have been worse. And there's this moment where he starts coming to Jesus. And when he started moving towards Jesus in that crowd, everybody else would have been like, Jesus, you better move. Jesus, Jesus. And everybody else would have kept their distance and moved as far away as they could. But what does Jesus do? See, Jesus has always been willing to move toward who other people would want to walk away from. Amen. You can clap. That's just all, it's, it's always been in his nature to move toward who other people want to reject. I love this story. Because Jesus had, could have had enough power. Like, all right, bro, stay right there. I'm going to heal you from a distance. Then we'll hug it out. But what does it say he does? He touches him. First time this man had felt human touch in who knows how long. Because Jesus knew before he healed his body, before he cured his leprosy, he needed to heal his loneliness. <laughs> That's who Jesus is. And you know where the religious, the religious people are? They're watching. Luke's going to tell us that at every turn, they're watching. They're from a distance. And they're thinking, our tradition says that ain't supposed to, ain't supposed to be done like that. See, there was this group called the Pharisees that we're going to see woven into Jesus' story very intentionally by Luke. 
but they were very prevalent. And these Pharisees not only believed in the old Jewish law, but they elevated the oral tradition of their ancestors to the same footing as the Jewish law. See, over the years, the, 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 the Pharisees and, and, and the Jewish people would, would take the law of God, which is perfect and pure and, and necessary, but then they would, they would manipulate it or distort it or add tradition to it as a way to apply it, and that tradition just kind of became this ball rolling down a hill, and it got out of control to where their tradition and the rules in their tradition outside the law had just grown so much, but they thought everything that was said by our ancestors, our tradition was on par with the law, and so it's just as important. And it's a reminder that we can very easily take tradition that was started with good intention, elevate it above the God it was supposed to point to, and it becomes an idol. That you can't do it like that. You can't preach in jays and a hoodie. That's not the way we do things. Because see, while other people were celebrating what Jesus was doing, the religious were annoyed by it. And they start to follow him. And there comes this moment when Jesus moves into a house and he's teaching and it's crowded and people are everywhere. But there's a group of friends that have a friend whose legs don't work. He's paralyzed. And they've heard about Jesus. And they think, you know what? We've tried everything, but I, I think this Jesus could do something for you, man. We got to get you to Jesus. We got to find a way to get you to Jesus. So they put him on a mat, they pick him up, and they start moving towards the house that Jesus was teaching in, but they can't even get in the door. There's so many people packed into this house, and they're, they're so captivated by Jesus' words that these friends who are desperately trying to get their hurting, broken friend to Jesus, that they decide, we've got to get him there. You need a friend like that. That'll say, I'll do whatever I need to to get you to Jesus, even when it's uncomfortable and even when we got to work hard to make it happen. And all of a sudden, an act of faith turns into an act of vandalism because they cut a hole in this guy's roof, y'all. Literally, the Bible says that they go up on the roof because they can't get in the door, they can't get through the windows, that they go up. I just imagine Jesus is teaching and then, pick, pick. what is happening? And then all of a sudden, like Mission Impossible, they lower this friend down right in front of him. And I just see Jesus, that's why I picture him. Jesus catches the eyes of the religious people. And this guy who's here to have his legs healed gets his sins forgiven first. That Jesus looks at him and he says, son, because he's so inspired by their faith. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. His friends are probably thinking, that's great, Jesus, but he needs to walk, man. We can't keep carrying him around everywhere. It's just a reminder that the greatest miracle that still happens this day is not when somebody is physically healed, but when somebody is spiritually rescued. It's going to sound weird what I'm about to say. But more than we need cancer healed, we need sins forgiven. Because you were going to die. All of us are eventually going to die. Even if God heals us physically, it will only be temporary. 
But all of us are going to die and face an eternity somewhere. And the only way to spend eternity with God is to have our sins forgiven. And Jesus is the only way that can happen. And look at what they say. Look at verse 21. Luke chapter 5, verse 21. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It was cool when you were doing little tricks and maybe healing people and doing all these kind of things, but, but only God can forgive sins. And what's crazy is their theology is correct. Their theology is correct. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. It's a reminder. You can have correct theology and still have a hard heart. You can have correct theology. You can grow up in the church and say all the right stuff. Look at me. You can know all about Jesus. You can know all these things. You, You can know more of the Bible than half the people sitting in this room. Doesn't mean your heart's not hard. Doesn't mean you're in relationship with God. You can have correct theology and a hard heart. You can have proper doctrine but blind eyes. And Jesus says, okay, okay. But just so you know, look at verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up take your stretcher and go home. And guess what the man did? He got up, he took his stretcher and he walked himself home. And you would think the Pharisees would be like, wow, if you can forgive sins and forgive mine, because I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. But they don't see it. See, Jesus has always been more drawn to sinners than self-righteous people. And then what would happen next would even infuriate them more because he would, he would be going along his way and he would encounter a man by the name of Levi. Look at Luke chapter five, verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. That's Matthew, y'all, y'all with me say amen. Levi, Matthew, same guy. Named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. The two people that Luke records as specifically being called by Jesus to follow Peter and now Matthew or Levi could not have been from two different worlds. Peter, this blue collar fisherman and Matthew, this tax collector. And in their day, they thought, they thought about tax collectors the way we think about tax collectors. And <laughs> it's that worse, it's that worse. Because these people, not only were they taking from people for Rome, they would manipulate the system to line their own pockets. And they would cheat people. And they were, they were very manipulative in what they did. And so they, they were considered absolute scum. And God says, or Jesus says, yeah, even you. I want you to come follow me. That what you're doing, this lifestyle, it may give you a big house and a nice car and all the worldly things that you want. But come on, Levi, you know something's missing. And you know, how I know something, he, you know how I know Levi felt like something was missing? He followed. <laughs> That's all you need to know is he said, okay. Okay. He immediately walked away from it all because he knew that what he had was not giving him what he needed. And it seemed like Jesus might just have it. 
And because he's coming out of this lifestyle, he doesn't really know how to pray, but he knows how to party. So that's what he does. He throws one. And Jesus goes to this party at Levi's house. And guess who's there? People like Levi. Other tax collectors and other sinners. And guess who follows him? The Pharisees. And they're like, Jesus, why do you hang around these people? Why do you, why do you hang around sinners and tax collectors and all these people? And Jesus says these profound words in Luke 531. It says, Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came for the people that know they need me. And they need me and they know they need me. See, you you think you're okay because you're following your tradition. You think you're good because you're wrapped up in this religious system and you think you're okay, they know they're not okay. The worst thing you can do is sit in church Sunday after Sunday apart from God and just think you're okay because you showed up. And then he begins to tell them these parables as they're trying to force, see what they're trying to do is, is they, what they can't wrap their mind around is they can't get Jesus to, to follow their rules. Look at me, Jesus never broke the law, but he refused to be captive to their tradition. Jesus will not be put in their religious box. There's something that we need to learn from that church. <laughs> and he tells them this parable to point out why he can't be put in this box. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39. It says, he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins it will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you can't tether the new thing I'm doing to your old way of thinking. It's not gonna work. You cannot tether my new way of doing to your old way of thinking. I'm coming to just tear apart that tradition that you've elevated and made more important than the God that they were supposed to point to. And from there, he moves on and he starts to do some things on this holiest of day, the Sabbath. Because of all the things that perhaps the Pharisees and those religious people had manipulated, it was the Sabbath. They took what God intended to be a day of real rest and just infused it with rigid rules. And Jesus tries to help them to see, number one, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus says. I I get to decide what gets done on the Sabbath and what doesn't. And you're you're so caught up in your religiosity. You're so caught up in your rigid rules. You're so consumed with your tradition that even when somebody is in need of mercy and grace that stands before you, you choose your tradition over the needs of other people. And when I come in and I, sh- I start doing things on the Sabbath that you don't like, you get angry because that's not the way you're used to do it. We don't do it like that. We don't sing that loud. We don't hear those kind of things. We don't wear that stuff. This is a certain way that we do things. 
to the point where even when people come in curious, looking to find hope in the God that we're supposed to gather about, we get more concerned in what we're doing than who we're doing it for and the people who need it most. And there comes this day, look at Luke chapter six, drop down to verse eight. Because there's a man in their midst on the Sabbath who needs healing and they're judging Jesus in advance before he even does anything. It says, but he, verse eight, but he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and he stood there, that they're in this place and there's a man who apparently has a hand that's just broken and deteriorated and shriveled and unusable. And it's the Sabbath day. And they're thinking, I don't care how big his need is. You don't heal on the Sabbath. Our tradition is more important than that man's healing. And before we get all bent, the church has done that. And so Jesus has him come up and hold the hand out. And this is what I think happened. He comes out and he exposes his hand. And y'all would have been painful to look at. It would have been, I mean, just the sight of it. And I wonder if Jesus looking around just to see, will there be one Pharisee that says, I don't care about tradition, Jesus heal him. Is there going to be one Pharisee that will say, forget our tradition, heal that man right now. He needs it. He's standing there with his hand exposed, hurting in need of healing. And everybody's just staring at him. He says, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? And it says, after looking around at them all. So the way he just starts to look, hey, what's better? To protect your tradition or to heal this man? And nobody says a word. They're so in love. They're so stubborn. (laughs) And here's a man in their midst hurting, needing healing. But they're elevating something else is more important. It says, after looking around at them all, he told them, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. And you would think the reaction would be, that's amazing. That's so, praise God. Look at what he can do. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Look at what he just did. But look at their response, verse 11. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus constantly finds himself in the presence of two different groups of people. Those who want to push him away. Those who want to find offense in everything that he does and everything he says. They want to find a reason to reject and push him away. But then there's those people that plead with him to stay because they understand he's got what I need. Which one are you? Because he's calling you to himself. As we walk towards Easter, we look at his life. This Jesus who healed and loved and cured and went the extra mile to bring people hope is the same one that's calling you into relationship with him right now. Stand with me. Father, I pray that, God, as we rise to our feet and we prepare to worship you, that your spirit would move throughout this room, that you would call people to yourself. 
that we would no longer push you away, but we would pull you close. We'd plead with you to come in, forgive us of our sins, to heal our hearts, that God, we would see us for who we are, broken in need of a savior, sinful and separated from God, but able to have redemption and hope in life because you do forgive sins. That's what you do best. That's what you want to do most is to take away the sin that stands between us and your father. And God, I pray right now that your spirit would move on us, Lord. And as we worship you, that you would bring people. God, you said if you'd be lifted up, you'd draw all people to yourself. So God, we lift up your name. Draw your people unto yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.